Welcome to episode two of the What in the Life Sciences podcast, titled What is Lead Identification? I'm your host, Roald Linder, and this podcast is brought to you by SDI, Scotland's International Trade and Investment Agency, as well as the British Embassy in Bern, Switzerland. As this podcast is about explaining, in simple terms, different aspects of the life sciences, specifically on the pharmaceutical side, today I wanted to focus on a topic that defines much of our personal experience with healthcare. What I'm talking about is how the medication that we consume is actually discovered and developed into drugs which aim to be both effective and safe. How do those working in discovering and developing drugs decide which one of the many candidates do get selected, developed and tested so that eventually a few of them end up in our bodies? How does this all work? To answer this question, I have the pleasure of announcing my guest of today's podcast and expert in drug discovery, Phil Jones. Thanks, Roland. Uh, my name's Phil Jones. I'm uh, the Chief Scientific Officer uh, at BioAscent. I guess it's probably fair to say that I've uh, had a fascination with drug discovery and medicinal chemistry for a long time. Uh, I guess it probably originated when seeing some of these in early scientific programs on television, and it, and it seemed to always combine an interest in organic chemistry, which was something I really liked at school. Um, we're trying to solve complex biological problems, um, how small molecules interact with those biological systems. And I think always with drug discovery, that, that um, comes with a, a really worthwhile outcome. If you are successful, then, then patients benefit, which is, which is something that's, that's really exciting. Um, as a result of that, I, I guess I've been involved in drug discovery for 35 years now. I'm still fascinated by it. And, and really, interestingly, I'm, I'm still learning. And that's always something that, that's really important to me. Um, I've spent time mainly in industry, uh, but also some time in academia as well. I, I worked with a number of companies. So for Roche, Organon, Shearing Plough, Merck, I spent a bit of time as a consultant before taking up some work at the University of Dundee. Uh, and before that, before I now take up my current position as, uh, as the CSO at BioAscent. All of those roles, except for the one at Roche, have been based here at the Newhouse site. So I'm, I'm, I'm really quite attached to the place. So that's why it was a little bit difficult when my last role for Merck was, was, at, it was as the acting site head and responsible for closing the facility down. But, mm. but, but more interestingly, I guess, was that part of that process was to find an alternative owner for the site. And for me, I, I really wanted to, this to be someone who could continue the heritage of drug discovery here. Newhouse has had a very long history of, of drug, and successful history of drug discovery. The, I think it was five marketed drugs were discovered here, um, admittedly all before my time, mm -hmm. one of which is currently a blockbuster, which means it's got a revenue of more than a billion dollars annually. Um, that molecule is what's known as a, a first-in-class molecule, so it's, so it's really innovative medicine that's helping many patients. So it was really good when BioCity took over the site in 2012, and it's now a vibrant community of, with many uh, sounds companies in, on, on site. And I think it was last year when uh, the total staff here exceeded uh, 300, which was more than when it was shut down. So for me, that was a, a real milestone for the, for the regrowth. One of the programmes that um, I got involved in following the Merck closure was the uh, European Lead Factory. Um, as a consultant, I was helped putting together proposals for, for this project. Um, this was a big project funded by um, the European Commission and supported by a number of major pharma pharmaceutical companies uh, funded through the Innovative Medicines Initiative and overall uh, it ran something like 200 million euros of funding so it was really quite a substantial uh, consortium and project but for me uh, the lead factory involved establishing a group of medicinal chemists and bioscientists 
here, here on site at Newhouse from scratch to carry out lead identification in collaboration with small companies and academic groups. So it was really good to get back to that topic of lead identification, which I guess is mainly what we, we were talking about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's just also very, you know, what I, I knew this in the back of my head, but I didn't actually realize that the site has grown so much by now. I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, no, um, it's really satisfying to see that, see that, that growth come back. Um, lots of really innovative small companies um, building up on site, which makes it a really interesting place to be. Marvellous. And you're part of one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess when we started the lead factory work, we were part of the University of Dundee, even though we were based on the Newhouse site. Uh, but as that project developed, we wanted to really move away from the rather binary nature of grant funding. Uh, it's interestingly coincided with some expansion plans uh, of Biosent, who were being based on the site since I think basically since 2012-2013 um, and those expansion plans are being driven by the, the now CEO Paul Smith and so it was a happy coincidence of, of us both looking for new opportunities and, and the discussions which ensued led to the team joining Biosent in 2018 and, and me taking up my, uh, my current role. It's those lucky coincidences that really make the best stories, I find. <laughs> do tell me then, what exactly does Biowasen do then? Yeah, we, we provide a, a number of key services to support drug discovery, mainly for, for biotech and academic customers. This requires us to have um, a deep expertise in a, in a number of areas. So from the chemistry point of view, that's medicinal, synthetic, and, and in fact, most recently, computational chemistry. Uh, in the biosciences arena, then... We need the expertise in biochemistry, which includes cellular assays, biophysics, and, and all the applications of those skills to, to drug discovery. We are a group that's got a, um, capabilities for screening at scale. And, and by this, I mean the biological screening of compounds and, and hundreds of thousands of compounds can be screened uh, using the technologies that we, we have available. This involves, um, we also in, have expertise in compound management, uh, which is actually the 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 first discipline of Biosent, that was uh, how it was originally set up uh, back in, say, 2013, as a, an expert compound management company by our founder, Sylvian Boucherin. And actually, we can do any of these, these use any of these disciplines as standalone projects. Um, but the real benefit comes when, when we have integrated projects which use multiple uh, aspects of those, of those disciplines, and we can work and synergize together. Let me just... Just summarize it just so it's clear in my head. So, so the master majority of your common customers are from the biotech and academia side of things. And they contract out work for you guys when it comes to actually discovering new drugs as well as managing the actual compounds, if I got this right. That's exactly right. So, so typically a, um, a customer um, would come saying they may want a compound made, in which case that's something we can, we can do. They may mm -hmm. want to utilize our medicinal chemistry experience uh, to say we want to work on this target um, we want to come up with some lead compounds in this area how do you think we might do about it so we can use our experience in that area mm -hmm. it may come saying we want um, a particular assay um, uh, that they need some expertise or techniques that uh, need to be put into place for their particular project. So again, we can use our biochemists and, and biophysicists to, to look at this particular problem, mm -hmm. um, come up with um, some particular information. And, and as I say, you can put all those elements together to say that 
um, maybe they have a project where they want to advance it. So that's what we would call an integrated project. So where we're integrating the medicinal chemistry and the, and the screening um, to advance the program. So if I understand this correctly, the companies come to you sometimes early in the process, sometimes later, depending on, hey, I have this idea that I, what I want to target or really, hey, we have this project we need specific help with in order to drive this forward, if I got this right. Yeah, so in some cases, they'll, they'll come with a specific task, which might be a reasonable way down the process. Probably the majority of customers come to us at the early stage. And I guess sometimes we'd argue it's a bit too late. We've actually got uh, a lot of experience in, in, in drug discovery programs and we can contribute to the plans. So the sooner we get involved, actually, the better. So, so we're, you know, we're very flexible. We can say, it's, I think it's probably better from our point of view we come in early, but we can hopefully make some contributions pretty much throughout the discovery process. So basically what you're saying is the moment somebody has the idea, okay, we or some institution has the idea, okay, we want to target um, lung cancer. Can you guys have a look at what we've, what we've been doing so far? That would probably be the best time then. Yeah, they probably come with a, um, a target mind. So we want to tackle lung cancer by tackling this particular kinase. Um, how would we start to, to, to formulate new leads in that area and what sort of screening cascade would we need to put in place? I think one of those sorts of lines. Now, you mentioned earlier that you're based in Newhouse. Can you tell us a little bit where that is? Because not everyone's familiar with um, the, the Scottish landscape, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, so Newhouse is probably about halfway between, between Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's based on the, the motorway that links those two, those two cities. We're in the central belt, so actually it's really convenient to access both those cities, but also broad range of, of, of southern Scotland, so southern central Scotland. So I, I actually live about 30 minute commute away on the edge of the Highlands. So from my point of view, I've got the best of both worlds, a, a really good place to work, but, a, a, but also a, um, a great place for a, a home life as well. So that, that's really good. I was going to say, nature must be nice there. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. So mountains on the doorstep, um, uh, which is really important to us, something that we, we really enjoy. Brilliant. I like it. So one of the things that, of course, is, is always one of those questions that I think any company in the world gets asked, but it's an important factor. Bioessence, how are you different from your competitors? What makes you stand out, so to speak? Yeah, I think, um, I think there are a, a number of areas where we think we... We, we like to differentiate ourselves from competitors. Um, I think uh, the essence of drug discovery is very much about the quality of the science. And, and so we think that that stands out. We've got a very uh, experienced team with an expertise in a whole different areas. And we're all based on one site, uh, which really enables close integration uh, and means that we can really support clients, clients seamlessly through, through their projects. So as we, as the compounds or the projects have focus in different discipline areas, then that's very easy for the communication to occur. Um, mm -hmm. Members of the teams have been involved in, in many drug discovery programs through the years. So, and, and whilst all programs are different, um, they often share some of the inevitable problems that, that, that crop up. And, and, and having a group that's uh, got experience-based ideas to resolve those problems, we think is a, a major advantage. Uh, that again puts us in a position to offer ideas to our clients, not just to do a piece of work, but also to, to think to help them think about how we can solve the problem as a team. 
we've got uh, world-leading experience in the processing of, of high-throughput screening, and I, and I guess we'll touch on high-throughput screening a little bit in a little bit more depth later on in the in the talk. I, the team here has run through the high-throughput screening process as part of the lead, European Lead Factory, but also for individual cost, customers, must be close to 100 times, I would guess. Um, and, and this is actually quite unusual for staff in major pharma companies, and I suspect unique for a small company. So but there's some real input that we can put into, into that process. Another thing that I think often differentiates us, especially for a company of our size, um, is the range of techniques we can offer. And this is important because at the start of a program, and as you start, as you start to plan what you want to do, it's often hard to judge which technique will be the most appropriate for a given project. So say in the, in the biophysics area, will, will, will the best biophysical assay be based around surface plasmus resonance? Will it be uh, based around microscale thermophoresis? Or will it be some sort of thermal shift assay that, that will be most appropriate? And having all those techniques in, in one site and the expertise to use them means that we can basically choose to do the right experiment at the, at the right time, which... Um, if, if I may actually ask, what happens if you do not choose the right one or the most appropriate one, shall we say? Is it, will it cause all delays, extra costs, or what's the main downside to it? You ideally choose the, 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 the correct experiment straight away. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. that's idea. If you don't, then, then most, most of our customers understand there's an element of uncertainty. I always say that um, if we knew exactly what to do, it wouldn't be research. Um, so, <laughs> so that there's an area of experiment about that. And again, that's why the experience of staff who, who can probably make that judgment many a time, first time, first time around, they'll make it correctly. Um, otherwise, then we've got, say, we can very quickly test, uh, test things subsequently. So yeah, I guess it does lead to some some delays, but if the quality of experiment at the end of the day is important, getting the right data to make the right decisions is, is really important. So that, that at the end of the day will actually save time if you're doing the right experiments. Uh, so um, yeah, again, I say that it's really important to have that range of techniques available. I, I guess some another kind of area that I'd just like to go back to on, I guess, the expertise of the, the, the staff. I, 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 perhaps I didn't say it at the start, but I'm, I'm a medicinal chemist by training. Um, and so I've actually worked with, with some of the medicinal chemists we have here on site for probably nearly 20 years. And, and there's some of the, the, the best I've seen and, and being able to solve those complex problems. I like to term green fingers that mean that the, the difficult practical chemistry, getting that to work is, is really important. Medicinal chemistry is about creating a a design hypothesis for the next molecule and then testing it. This is often termed the design make test cycle. But clearly to make that work, you've got to be able to, to make the right uh, molecule as well as be able to test it. So that getting that information back will enable you to refine the hypothesis and, and choose the next compound to make. But having that excellence in, 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 in several disciplines is absolutely essential to, to, to make that work. And again, coming back to the communication, being on one site, is, is really important. It's, it's, it's interesting we've had from the feedback we've had from, I remember some in particular about some of the biosciences uh, work that we've got was, was regarding the quality of the work that differentiates us. One customer uh, came to us having been to a, another CRO first and they'd been unable to reproduce the, the, the work that an academic group had originally done, which was the basis for their project. But they came to us and were delighted to find that we were able to do this 
and then and then again press it more with our, our detailed understanding of the systems that that's that's really quite important to help uh, customers move their projects along i think it's also the, the best kind of feedback that you get um you know you think you could do what your competition couldn't do it's always a pleasure to hear that isn't it yeah, exactly yeah no it's a, it's a testament to the, the the team we have here I guess another aspect that's unusual um, about BioSense is we've got our own compound library. Um, uh, this is accessible through a, a web-based application called Compound Cloud. Um, this comprises of over 100,000 pharma quality libraries on stock at, at the moment, but we also have access to many more through our strategic partners. And this is relatively unusual for a company uh, of our size. Um, and actually, it's handled by our compound management capabilities, which are, uh, are world leading. It's uh, they've got farmer experienced staff um, and some superb facilities um, that um, that have been established actually from when the site was um, part of uh, Shearing Plough. So, um, yeah, that's say farmer quality cap capabilities there. So, if you're saying compound cloud, what are basically if I, if I understand this correctly, so this basically means that the clients wherever they sit can literally just access your compound library virtually through, I guess, an access portal and check all the compounds. Exactly. So um, uh, I think we've termed it a bit, a bit like um, virtual shopping, if you like. You can you can <laughs> see the, all the compounds that we have available, the, the, the structures of those 100,000 compounds, and you can select a few tens of compounds, a few hundreds. We're more than happy to supply the whole lot. Um, and but any combination of them, you may want to make a selection using computational chemistry to choose a particular set of those compounds, or you may have other reasons for choosing them. And that's, um, again, anything can be accommodated. So basically what Compound Cloud is, is that, that list of 100,000 compounds that basically makes any combination of those compounds available to the, the, the client easily through a web-based system. So it's very much like online shopping, if you like. I like that. Talk about digitalization. Wonderful. Okay. I, I believe after what you've been telling me that you do have the right credentials for today's topic, which is what is lead identification? So can you first of all, tell us a little bit about what the terminology is coming from? Because not everyone that is listening to this podcast will exactly know what lead identification is. So. Yeah. So um, small molecule drug discovery programs, and, and basically that probably means anything, any medicine you take, uh, that, that comes in the form of a tablet, but more besides, but certainly those, they all begin with a, with a biological rationale. Um, so let's say if I inhibit a viral enzyme, will I kill the virus? Topical at the moment. So um, as I say, that, that could be a certain rationale and that's very sound, but very soon you, you need some chemical matter uh, to validate that rationale and to find out whether Indeed, if you inhibit that viral enzyme, will you in fact kill the virus? And so you actually need um, some chemical matter to enable you to test that to test that rationale. Now that chemical matter might turn out just to be the tool so that you prove that inhibiting the viral enzyme does kill the virus. And that's an important piece of information. Um, often it actually even becomes the starting point um, for, for the medicine. So that ultimately features of that initial compound Will, will be what forms the basis of the final molecule in, the, in that project. And how you find that chemical matter, that's what we call lead identification. 
so if, if, if I can summarize that in my non-chemist terminology and mindset, it's effectively you apply a chemical to a biological thing, like a virus, like a cell, and see if something happens as, as you're hoping that it would. And based upon that, you'll see if you want to pursue this chemical further to maybe eventually make a drug out of it. Or if not, then you want to see, okay, maybe another chemical may actually be useful here. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that's that's a very good summary. Yeah. And I think I'd say it was um, uh, a key aspect in the drug discovery process. As some people have assumed that once that you run the screen, so you run the screen of 100,000 or half a million compounds or something like that, you'll discover the drug. But that, that's almost that's almost never the case. I was in preparation for this. I, I couldn't actually think of a single example where that is the case. You, you, you take the lead and then it subsequently has to be, has to be modified. And I often say that, that, that the lead identification process sets the trajectory of success for the, pro, for the whole program. Because if you, if you start with a high quality lead, then the chances are that the next stage of the process, the lead optimization process, um, where, where the ultimate goal will be to achieve the clinical candidate, the chances of success of that process are, are much higher. But in some ways, even more importantly, then the process of clinical development, the process beyond the clinical candidate will be more straightforward with a high quality, high quality candidate. And, and the quality of that molecule can determine whether you can, could enable you to shave years off the development program. And in many cases, maybe the, the difference between success and failure. So whilst it is, it's right at the early part of the process, it, it really sets the basis for success of the whole program and bear in mind some of these uh, drug discovery programs in the discovery phase are five to ten years and then the, in, the, in the development of the clinical development phase can be another five to ten years so mm -hmm. you are you know there's a, there's a lot of investment that will go in on the basis of that early work so that's why i think of it as being so important right because if you choose the best possible option straight on or as early as possible, it means ultimately you can save time, money that you need in the development process, right? Exactly right, yeah. How do you, how and when is this done? Especially identifying the, the, the high quality um, candidate, how do you do this? Yeah, so I mean, of, of course, drug discovery has got a, a long heritage and, and an early lead ID was, was often the, the, the chance observation that an existing molecule had some of the properties that we were looking for as, a, as an example. Um, I guess we all know the story of how Alexander Fleming uh, discovered penicillin. It was a chance observation that something was inhibiting the growth of bacteria in a Petri dish in his lab. It's a smart observation to, to, to recognize that, but then, but then having recognized it, um, identifying what the active ingredient was and isolating that and characterizing it, determining what the chemical structure of that, that process of that compounds was, was, uh, was really important and, and involved some extremely smart science. Uh, but having done that, then the, the treatment infections, of course, with the discovery of penicillin was, was revolutionized. That's, those chance discoveries are, are, are always important, but, but of course we look to make it, make it more systematic and the process has been industrialized now um, to basically maximize the, the chances of success. And I, and I often think of there being a, a number of, of broad approaches, what I call knowledge-based approaches. Um, mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's where we maybe we have some information from the scientific literature um, that suggests a chemical approach. If we go back to the situation with enzymes again, then maybe the substrate for that, for that enzyme is known. And then we could hypothesize that 
a modification to that substrate using some features of the substrate, but using modifications to turn it into inhibitor might be a good starting point. So that's what I'd say I would call a, a knowledge-based approach. You're, you're utilizing the information that's in the literature in some form. Uh, increasingly, there's, there's computational approaches. So can molecular modeling or virtual testing, so testing in, in the in, in computer, if you will, um, and in, I guess increasingly using artificial intelligence, can, can those techniques be, to be used to predict which molecules will be leads? But the currently, certainly, and for some considerable time now, the mainstay of lead identification is what's called screening-based approaches. And so it, in this, you, you take a library of compounds, um, and this might be about a thousand compounds for fragment-based approaches. It might be hundreds of thousands of, of compounds for a diversity-based HTS, or it might even be millions of compounds in the, in, in the case of DNA-encoded DNA libraries. And so you have those libraries of those compounds, you, the, the biological tests have been miniaturized and accelerated so that hundreds of thousands of compounds can be tested in a few days. So it, it means that it's manageable to, to, to test that volume of compounds. And therefore, if you've got the right infrastructure, um, a diversity-based screen can be run very quickly. Uh, and this is one of the areas that Biosense specializes it's with our compound logistics and our capabilities in, in, in developing uh, high throughput assays. So that screening-based approach is, is probably, as I say, the, currently the mainstay of, 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 of lead identification. So let's see if I got this right in my head. So initially we started off with, with a setting where a chemist, scientist per se, was more or less discovering by chance that certain leads, certain, tar, uh, certain chemicals can have a positive effect, have a desirable effect. Over time, we have a much more design process, much more sophisticated process. We have, of course, the existing literature, effectively what research and academics and other scientists create. We have, of course, computational model, AI going, okay, this is potential. Let's have a look at this. Or literally, we're looking at all possible data so far with various assays and just test, uh, basically quantify the whole approach in order to make it larger, in order to, to just run through more tests to make this happen. Yeah, I think, that, I think that, 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 that's right. So saying just testing those, those uh, large libraries of compounds, and sometimes it's called random screening because you don't know mm -hmm. which, if any of those compounds in those lively large sets are going to be, going to be active. Um, and so there's a lot of work that goes into designing the libraries and making sure that the compounds in there are going to be as applicable as possible to a to a broad range of targets, uh, but still there's, a, there's very much an element of chance and serendipity about it. But as ever, the smarter you are about designing the screens and the libraries, then the, 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 the chances of, it, of success um, increase. I understand that. Okay, tell us a little bit about how we have to imagine what people, what professions are per se involved in this whole process. Yeah, so again, it's a, it's a, it's a big team effort, there's um, a strong element of chemistry involved here. So medicinal, synthetic and computational chemistry. Um, we have biochemists and pharmacologists um, who can uh, apply a range of techniques. Compound logistics is an absolutely core feature of this. Um, if you can imagine when you've got hundreds of thousands of compounds, you need to be extremely certain you don't get them mixed up. It, it's vital you know <laughs> which, which sample was responsible for, for the activity. 
Um, and so uh, having smart systems to look at those samples and to store those samples is, is a really important part of that process as well. I hear you, because it, it's sometimes as ridiculous as it sounds, getting the wrong one in and thinking it's another one is probably one of those outcomes you don't really want in terms of your tests. You just don't have a useful result, do you, in the end of the day? It's like putting the wrong part into your car. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, and, and very hard to recognize the part in this particular case because they're all very small amounts of uh, very similar looking solutions. I don't envy the logistics guy. <laughs> <laughs> So let's put it this way. Now we've talked a little bit about the process, who's involved in it, but when it comes to lead identification, who is most interested in it? What industries rely on it per se? It's, it's, a, it's a feature specifically, I guess, of drug discovery. So the stakeholders in that area, I guess, are those that are most interested in it. So the pharma industry, of course, uh, increasingly the biotech industry, um, uh, and also some academic labs and strong interest in, in drug discovery in a number of universities. Uh, and so basically any groups that are interested in generating new medicines uh, will be interested in, in lead identification. Are we then also largely talking about human medicine or also animal medicine in that context? Yeah, so uh, predominantly we're talking about uh, human healthcare. The, the applications potentially move into uh, animal healthcare as well. The systems are analogous, although it tends to be more the focus within within human healthcare. The other, the other area sure. uh, which which it has a, a relevance to uh, is agritech. So the discovery of new agents to help farming, um, the, the agricultural industry. So new fertilizers, new insecticides, all those sort of areas use an analogous process and, and, and sometimes it's really quite similar there's a, there's a few different uh, different constraints in those areas but but actually the the process in some ways is very similar so if i get this then it's the importance for society is then largely in the new medicines if i get this right the importance of lead identification is literally it's about new medicines by and large in the areas where we're focusing then yeah i think that that's exactly right as i say there's the agritech and the and the veterinary healthcare, probably more the agri-tech, but um, uh, the, say the human healthcare is where we think of the uh, major investments and the, and, the, and the development of the technology and the expertise has been probably the greatest. Um, I mean, I, I think um, it's probably fair to say that, that um, without these starting points, then we'd not have any new medicines at all. So it, it, it's vital for the wider society that lead identification is done effectively. Although I suspect if you ask the majority of folk, they'd probably never have heard of it. Um, um, yeah. If you think of a specific example in the, in the, in the 80s, I suppose it was the recognition of HIV AIDS and with that was effectively a death sentence. And, and now it's, it's down to a, a becoming a, a manageable disease. And that's due to a range of small molecules um, that all require lead identification um, to make them become available. They've required a lot of other work as well, so I don't want to underestimate the, the rest of the process. But nonetheless, without lead identification, those small molecules which became the treatments would not have been possible. And that's also true of, of many of the new cancer treatments, uh, the way we treat high blood pressure, the discovery of statins for, treat for lowering um, high cholesterol levels, Drugs that are used in surgery, stomach ulcer treatments, anticoagulants, asthma drugs, diabetes, the, the list goes on. So 
all of those have a common element that, that, that a strong lead identification part had to be put into place to enable the ultimate goal of a new medicine that has had all that patient benefit to be put into place. I understand, because otherwise we wouldn't have a lot of the great medication that we have nowadays to available, quite frankly, if we wouldn't have that part of the process, so to speak. Yeah, it would be, just be non-starters. So, yeah, say from that point of view, absolutely key. Tell me then, what's the, I don't want to say issues, but let's just say the main challenges when it comes to leadification. Um, at least when, you, when you're screening, what, what do you need to make this happen? What's the main challenges to the whole process? So I think, I, I think the, the process, particularly of high throughput screening, requires access to uh, infrastructure, um, having access to large quality library um, and the- I feel sorry, would you mind quickly explaining what high throughput screening is per se, just the term? Because I don't think we have gotten into details. So high throughput screening is, is, is where we're screening these large libraries. So hundreds of thousands of lights. So because there are so many compounds that you want to test individually, then the, the methodology that you need to carry out, it has to be high throughput, just so that you can get through the challenge in a, in a relatively uh, short period of time. So that's the basis of it. Now, what that requires is significant amount of automation. So robotic screening. Uh, is required. So robots to basically carry out the screens to enable them to be done uh, at the sort of speed that, that's required. And that requires um, screening expertise and again the compound logistics that we've that we've mentioned. If you want to screen hundreds of thousands of compounds, you've got to have a library, obviously you've got to have a you've got to have a library of hundreds of thousands of compounds. And and that's not trivial to assemble um, when again it's the, the compounds that are uh, the quality of those compounds is very important, so it has to be um, determined and, and uh, assessed when you're putting together uh, putting together the library. So there are a number of blockers, if you will, for certainly for small organisations to become involved in using a, a high throughput screen because of the infrastructure that, that's required. Just so I, so I get this right, so one of the challenges is in, in high throughput screening. You need to have the infrastructure for it. You need to have the storage for all the chemicals, the compounds, and you need to have the machinery, the equipment, the screening expertise to actually make that happen, to actually allow for that process to happen in the first place. Exactly, yeah. Um, and uh, okay. together, of course, with the experience of, of, of how to, and expertise in how to handle all that equipment and, and the knowledge and the experience that, that from previous projects to, to understand what, what, what happens. So, so I guess one of the other the challenges in this area is, is something that, that's known as um, false positives. So if you're screening, so for example, if, you've, if, if you're compounds that can be interfering with the assay technology that you're using, so you, what you're looking to do is go back to the earlier example is to, is to find some compounds that maybe are inhibiting an enzyme and you're using an assay technology, it's often based around fluorescence or some sort of light-based technology to, to enable you to see whether your enzyme is being inhibited. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, if the compound actually interferes with the light signal as opposed to the enzyme, then it will actually look like you've got an inhibitor, uh, whereas actually all you've got is something that's, uh, that's interfering with the assay technology, and that, that isn't a productive place to work. So you've got to avoid being confused, and, that, and that's done by a very careful analysis and triage of the output. And it's really, again, coming back to the earlier point, it's really important that that's done because as 
as a leads advance, then you'll put more and more resources into them. And it's important that what you what you've originally identified was this, was a compound that was doing what you thought it was doing, and you've not been confused by these um, false positives. And this requires the establishment of of different sorts of assays, uh, ideally biophysical assays. Uh, they need to be developed, um, and and also you need a detailed understanding of the of the liabilities of the particular uh, chemical structures being tested. So I guess once a few potential hits have been identified, then fresh samples need to be synthesized to confirm their validity. So to make sure that the original sample was doing, does the same when, when, you, when you remake it. And then you also ideally used to make some slight variations on that structure and see how the activity varies. And, and from that information, it's often possible to us to help to assess the, the quality of the information. So, and all those, um, synthesis activities and recognition about chemical structures that all requires um, high quality medicinal and synthetic chemistry and again what's really key and I keep coming back to it is the communication between these different scientists so that they can um, make sure that process happens as smoothly as possible. Um, in, in, the end, in the end what you're saying is does you're doing this with the goal in order to reduce well not per se errors but making definitely making sure that you're looking at the right kind of thing in terms of fluorescence, in terms of making sure that everything else remains the same, that you can repeat the same effect in different, first of all, say cells, just to make sure that this is really the right thing that you're looking at, basically. Yeah, and it's 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 probably less errors than just a facets of the of the structure. There's there's no liabilities behind doing things in a certain way. So you do so to do an assay in a certain way, you know that there's going to be a risk that it's going to be influenced. By a certain type of approach, a certain type of molecule. So basically, you make sure you design another assay to follow up, which isn't susceptible to that same problem, and so that you can weed out the um, the, the compounds that you initially identified, which actually aren't working in the way that you hoped they were. Okay. How would you, out of curiosity, how would you describe an assay to someone who has never actually seen one in real life? <laughs> and it was an unfair question. So practically. Um, it will um, be a some sort of vessel, so a small, uh, I hesitate to call them test tubes because they're not test tubes, but uh, small plastic vials or small, or small um, holes in wells effectively, or wells in a, a plate. And you will add some solutions to that, uh, to that vessel um, so that you will add maybe the enzyme, you will add a substrate, um, and then you will let that process for a certain time at a given temperature. Um, and then you will measure the amount of, and in many cases, you will hit that with a frequency of light and measure the response to that light that comes that comes from it. So, so mm -hmm. basically, it'll it'll uh, it'll look like a plate, um, a small plastic plate, maybe I don't know, ten centimeters by five centimeters, something like that, um, and will have the whole series of, of wells in it. Um, and it, it'll be the light response that comes from each of those wells that gives you the value that, of, of the compound that you've added to each individual well. Interesting. Okay, marvelous. Thank you for that. Um, other challenges, um, some targets, to be honest, they're, they're just what we would call undruggable so that they, they don't lend themselves to small molecules um, modulating their activity. So we could have classes of what are called protein-protein interactions or some enzymes which have got large flat binding, binding sites uh, can be a big problem and you potentially won't see a, uh, a positive even when you screen very large libraries of compounds. You can try to 
affect that by using different libraries of compounds, um, or there are other techniques that can become available. There's a, one that people are very enthusiastic about is a, a technology called Protax, where instead of inhibiting the protein uh, using a small molecule, what you do is, is come up with a, a molecule um, or Protac, which almost effectively hijacks the degradation mechanisms within the cell and leads to the specific degradation of the, of the target molecule. Um, so effectively you're achieving the same end. Uh, instead of inhibiting it, you're of the enzyme, you're removing it, uh, but you're doing it using a rather different approaches. And, and this is a very exciting area and one that's, that's say, of, of a considerable interest at the moment. Let's maybe move to the following. If we look at lead identification techniques, um, can they be used in another part of the drug discovery process if we consider that as an you know, end-to-end -end type of process? Where else can they be used, for example? Sure, yeah. Um, so um, quality medicinal chemistry and biological testing is actually the core of the next stage of the process, the so-called lead optimization process. This is where you, you move from the lead compound that you've discovered in the lead ID phase towards the clinical candidate. So the clinical candidate being what you want to test actually in human beings, basically, yeah. during clinical trials. Yeah, so the clinical candidate will be the molecule that actually forms the basis of the, of the drug. Um, there's a lot of testing to do on that, on that clinical candidate, but the molecule re will remain the same. So it's absolutely vital that the best common of features, combination of features is chosen for that molecule. And again, the design mate test cycle figures heavily during that, that, that phase of the, so that's during the lead optimization phase. Uh, it, it, it's probably on a slightly broader range of properties um, that we really start to, to hone down on the, uh, on the precise properties you require in, in your ultimate medicine. But nonetheless, the, the medicinal chemistry and the biological testing is absolutely central to that, to that process as well. So uh, again, coming back to Biosent, we've got a great deal of experience in these areas, um, getting many programs to the team. I've had very many programs getting to clinical candidate and an experience of that covers uh, a range of therapeutic areas and, and target families. So again, we've got a, a lot of experience in that area. I guess probably um, more tangentially, the, the skills can be useful in other areas. And, and just as an example, um, our experience of high throughput testing and, and, and project management and process, all aspects of the work that we do at Biosent, was requested to help set up the, the Lighthouse Lab um, in Glasgow. This is the, the COVID testing lab that came to prominence so, so heavily last, this time last year. Um, so our director of biosciences and, and I spent seven weeks in Glasgow working with the team there to, to set up that centre from scratch. Um, so whilst it's not directly about the work that we do um, day to day, the, 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 some of the skills that we have are applicable in, in, in other areas as well. That must have been a very interesting project, especially during that time, no? Yeah, no. Yeah, interesting is a good word for it. Yeah, yeah. Stressful, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty busy, yeah, but uh, very worthwhile. There's it, a great team of people uh, assembled over there, and um, it was a great experience. Brilliant. I mean, you've been in this field for a few years now. So tell me, what has changed in the last few years when it comes to lead identification, or perhaps the whole drug discovery process? How has it changed in the last couple of years, shall we say? In a slightly longer time frame than that, then and we're... we're there's a, there's a number of technologies that are continuing to evolve. Um, a, a big breakthrough came from something called uh, fragment-based approaches. Um, here we use smaller libraries of smaller compounds, which has a number of 
positive advantages, but, but typically it, it results in compounds that require more optimization, particularly in the, in the activity of the compounds. The sort of lead that you get out of that process would probably be less active than typically out of a, of a, a larger high throughput screen. Um, right, because you test less, therefore you have to optimize it later. And the, compound, the compounds are simpler, so which means that they are possibly less specific initially and you have to design all those properties in. And that, and that usually relies on also having access to something called structural biology, um, which is predominantly so far has been around protein X-ray crystallography, where you can actually get a, an atomic resolution picture, if you will, of the, of the target, ideally with your molecule bound to it. So it gives you some really clear information about how to optimize um, those molecules. So that's been an important um, technique that's come in. Um, um, I, I guess... Um, one of the changes is wider access to high throughput screening infrastructure. It's, it's been uh, a problem, as we mentioned above, that the that, that, that high throughput screening requires intensive infrastructure. So creating mechanisms where that can be expandable to mm -hmm. academic groups and small companies is something that's, uh, that's very valuable. And that's something that the European Lead Factory uh, enabled us to do um, in more specific areas. I just ask Phil, what is the European Lead Factory? just to people that may not be aware of this. Okay, so yeah, so the, the European Lead Factory is a, a project that is run by the Innovative Medicines Initiative. So it's funded uh, by the European Commission and also a number of pharma companies and basically created a consortium uh, that, that generated the infrastructure, if you will, for um, carrying out uh, high throughput screening for small companies and academic groups from across Europe. Uh, so I guess one of the other areas that's changed is the screening technologies, so uh, label-free methods to avoid the problems of interference compounds that we mentioned earlier is something that's becoming increasingly uh, important and, and technologies are evolving in that area. Um, so hopefully that will lead us to other options for, for coming up with high quality leads. And I think probably the, the overall infrastructure um, has changed significantly over Probably a little bit longer time frame than you're talking about, but, but open innovation is becoming more and more important with the with the opening up of the infrastructure and the uh, the the, gen, the development of smaller companies, uh, some of which are just virtual, um, mm -hmm. um, and means that a much broader range of of ideas are are coming forward and and provide options for for new medicines. I was going to say the proliferation of totally entirely virtual companies nowadays. I mean, originally I saw it more with biotech, but it's becoming more of a kind of way of doing things, isn't it? Um, it, 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 it that's exactly right. It, the, so the, um, many of the new organizations are literally just a handful of people uh, with no laboratory facilities, which of course plays directly to the contract research organization, the CRO, um, because they, they basically need um, uh, scientists, quality scientists, who will be able to carry out uh, their ideas, uh, contribute to those ideas, mm -hmm. and push it forward. So in that, that, in many ways, has signaled the, the real growth um, in the CRO market, and certainly in, in the UK, where there's a, a number of um, organisations that now looking to provide services in this area. I understand, because it's just, it's just how um, the industry develops in a way. But to maybe summarize what you just said. So basically a couple of main changes were simply there's new approaches. There is a wider access to the high throughput screening infrastructure. There's different screening technologies. 
lead optimization through AI. And of course, because more open innovation as the companies as, as, in, as in the way of how you do drug discovery and who does it has changed basically. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. a good summary. So that's so far. Now let's make that wonderful <laughs> and elusive look into the class, into the, you know, into the future. Um, this is, of course, when you can just tell me what you think will happen. What, what do you think um, the industry is going to develop? What's, what do you think is going to happen in the future in terms of truck discovery? Where do you see the changes? Yeah, I think probably in the, uh, in the short term, we see the, um, it, it, to a certain extent, it's, it's developing more of the label-free technologies. For instance, um, mass spec-based spec screening. Um, so this is using mass spectrometry to... to um, to, to follow the um, to follow the course of the of the reaction and to to identify the modulators of the of the enzyme or or, or the target. Um, these are again label free, so less susceptible to interference compounds. It, the, this technology is coming on in leaps and bounds. Uh, if I go back to when I was uh, doing my PhD, we needed to wait overnight for a single mass spec to be run, whereas whereas now. So the idea of screening hundreds of thousands of compounds was just seemed incredible, but now it's possible. So they say the technology is evolving uh, amazingly in that area. Uh, I've touched a little bit on Protax, um, this, this selective degradation of molecules, and that's, a, say, a really exciting area. And I think we'll see some really interesting breakthroughs in the, in the next few, uh, next short period, next few months and years. I guess that's still interesting from the point of view is that the core disciplines in there are still high quality chemistry and screening. So um, it's, a, it's a novel approach, but, but still reliant on some of the, of the core disciplines that we've talked a little bit about. Uh, we've talked about fragment-based drug discovery uh, and its reliance on X-ray crystallography, but the, the breakthroughs in what's called cryo-EM, cryo-electron microscopy, um, is really starting to make an impact there so that there's a much broader range of targets for structural biology can be determined and so that the fragment-based drug discovery potentially increases its areas of applicability mm -hmm. library technology then there's a whole range of dna dna encoded libraries which means that truly massive libraries are going to be possible here and of course artificial intelligence is 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 affecting uh many areas of our of our um, life at the moment um there's certainly some very exciting results that are starting to emerge in the lead optimization phase, and that's bound to have a positive effect on, on lead ID. So it's an exciting area. There's lots of new technologies that are coming along that, that, that will expand uh, the areas that we're, that we're able to work in. So if I understood it correctly, it's without going to every technology per se, it's literally mainly a technological innovation push more than anything else, right? That's happening right now. Newer, better, novel approaches of solving sometimes all problems right yeah no, i think that's a i think that's a good summary in some ways that that sounds incremental um but actually some of the technologies will really enable some significant significant breakthroughs and and it's, it's always worth remembering that the uh, the patients are at the core of this so being able to come up with a a new way of tackling um a disease or a, a way of tackling a disease which so far has not been tackleable um is, is where the real innovation comes. Mm -hmm. um, and so if these techniques enable that to happen, then, then the rewards are, are just phenomenal. Absolutely. Do you reckon we will ever see an, an entirely virtual drug discovery process? 
can you ever see that happening that there is no one sitting in the lab anymore because i clearly see the benefit of having a closely coordinated team working together would that ever work in an entirely virtual setting personally i can't see it i think um that quality lab work will remain the core mm -hmm. it's so hard to i think right at the start of when we started chatting then i talked about trying to use chemistry to to modulate complex biological problems and those biological problems are extraordinarily complex and the, the interaction is very complicated and so i can't foresee the day at the moment when we move away from having to make the molecules and test them in real biological systems and so um, whilst we may be able to do well, I mean, one of the, some of the breakthroughs that that are coming from artificial intelligence are may be able to to reduce the number of things you try so that you you're better able to select the most efficient way of getting to your final endpoint. Um, but mm. as yet, I've not seen anybody propose that you don't um, uh, that you can entirely get away from uh, all the intermediate steps. So so personally, I don't see it. Um, and yeah, personally, I don't personally, I don't see that. No, it's an absolutely fair point in the end of the day. No, because especially the, the because of the complexity aspect, I, I see where, you, where you're coming from with this. I was just curious um, to see if, if that's happening because I see that in some industries. Good. Thank you very much for this so far. Would you like to have a little conclusion? Uh, would you like to have a little summary on your part? Because I've, I've been pondering you with questions all day. <laughs> so please feel free to uh, maybe tell us a little bit what you thought about all this and the conclusion when it comes to this. Yeah, I think um, I think in, in recent years, uh, there have been a number of breakthroughs that have been made with what called new modalities. So um, there's a lot of things like protein-based therapeutics, so uh, antibody-based therapies, um, some spectacular results in, the, in those areas. So. Um, oligonucleotide-based therapeutics, the so-called antisense, and again, um, they are having some significant um, beneficial outcomes. Um, but I still believe that small molecules will remain uh, a key pillar of therapeutic options. Medicines taken as tablets rather than by injection still seem to me to be more acceptable. And currently, there's a this is clearly the domain of small molecules. Um, so while small molecules are at the, play this important role, then, then lead ID will play be a key, key discipline. And as I said, partway through, I, I think it sets the trajectory for success. So, so I see um, an important future for lead ID. Um, and ultimately, that, that's, a, that's an important way of, of, of leading to, to benefit patients. So, um, an area that I remain very excited about um, and continue to watch with, with, with interest. Great. Phil, thank you so much for taking part in this podcast. This was episode two of What is Lead Identification? And I think, I, hopefully, after listening to this, people will know what it is. <laughs> but I think they should. <laughs> Phil, thank you very much.